For Thursday, December 17th, 2020, this is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, for months, obituary writers the world over have been telling the stories of some of the hundreds of thousands of people killed by COVID-19. Writing about the lives of people who have died, for those who don't have an experience it directly, is a way of driving home the human cost. Dan Waken, obituaries editor for The New York Times, joins me to discuss his paper's effort to chronicle the pandemic's victims. That's next. free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. COVID-19 has killed more than 300,000 people in the U.S. alone and more than 1.6 million around the world. And for months, the New York Times has been working to tell some of their stories through a project called Those We've Lost. Dan Waken, an obituaries editor at the paper, has been working on that project since its early days. He's with me now to discuss it and how it's changed his perspective on the value of obituaries. Dan, thanks for talking with me. My pleasure. How did this project come about? What's kind of the origin story here? Well, there's actually a pretty specific thing that happened. Um... That, uh, that got the ball rolling. Uh, one of the obit writers in our department is Sam Roberts, who is really one of the great legends at the Times. Uh, he's covered just about everything. He, you know, he was on the Metro desk, I believe, during 9-11. And after 9-11, Metro embarked on this quite powerful project to basically profile, in, in, a, in a more vignette-like way, every person who died at 9-11. This project was called Portraits of Grief in Metro. And as the seriousness of the pandemic became obvious back in in early March, Sam harked back to that project, Portraits of Grief, and he sent an email to the All Obits email uh, address and said, hey, should we think about doing a Portraits of Grief for the coronavirus? And right around the same time, I had lunch with uh, Donald McNeil, a friend of mine at the paper who covers infectious diseases and has been one of the lead reporters on this. And He said to me, you're an obits, you should get prepared for huge numbers of deaths. That was a kind of a chilling thing to hear. And that really reinforced the idea that Sam had a great had a great point that we should start doing something as the obituary's desk at The New York Times. This was March. I mean, it's kind of hard even to remember what that time 
felt like. Uh, how did this feel at the time to you embarking on a project you didn't know really the, the size or scope of it? Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly it. We, we had no idea how many people were going to die and when it would end. We started seeing really kind of chilling things happening. For instance, in Northern Italy, I don't know if you recall, there were enormous numbers of people in the hospital and dying, and it was um, just chilling what was happening there. And then colleges were sending students home, and the stock market was, was going way down. So it looked like something cataclysmic was happening, and so we just decided to act. We pulled our act together pretty quickly. We sort of came up with the idea of what it would look like, a name for the project, and I sort of felt I had to figure out some way to approach a limitless body of information, right? And I wanted, to be, I wanted it to be different than Portraits of Grief because it was more of an obituaries project where that was a project run by Metro. Uh, it was a series of vignettes, four to six paragraphs, maybe capturing one aspect of a person. And I wanted to do something more complete for the people dying of, of COVID. So we sort of narrowed it down to short obits, effectively, short profiles of people who are not famous and celebrated, the kinds of people that we normally do obits about, just sort of regular, regular people, um, but giving them the treatment that a newsmaker would get. Considering that y'all are not just chronicling kind of famous people here, how do y'all make the decision about who to actually memorialize? You know, that's a very tough question to answer, and it's it's a kind of an amorphous process. But we, at the outset, issued a call out, a request to readers to send in information on loved ones or friends who have died of COVID. We look through those and find interesting stories, people that are accessible. Another source are news reports from around the country, people who just write in. Uh, so that's the pool. And then the question is, how do you draw from the, those pools. Well, one thing I've tried to do from the very beginning is to focus on the news. You know, if you look back at the coverage starting in March, it became clear right away that health workers were dying at a disproportionately large number. Um, so I, I wanted to find nurses, doctors who were dying. And that was, you know, right away, it was very apparent. Then it became clear that nursing homes was a major source of death. And I tried to focus on people that were in nursing homes. And then I, I started noticing this phenomenon that husbands and wives were dying sometimes within hours of each other. And, and to me, that was a very powerful thing. So I assigned a few of those. So that's one side of it. The other side is who are the good stories, right? We're, this is really journalism and we're writing news articles. We're not writing eulogies or death notices. We're writing news articles and we want, we want to write stories that are compelling and powerful and that really sort of do what obits do best, which is describe the arc of a life. Tell me some of these that maybe have stuck out to you, obits that you've worked on or that your your team has worked on that have just really, really stuck with you. Well, there's so many. You know, we've done almost 350, nearly 400. I guess the ones that stuck out for me are, are the people that had found some sort of new chapter in their lives, people who had made a new start, who had found love or, you know, had a child, and then were sort of struck down by this disease. Um, there's um, a guy in Phoenix, he was a night shift worker at a gas station. And a couple of weeks before he died, he became a father. 
Uh, I think one of the one of the more moving ones is a, a woman named Margaret Holloway. She was a graduate of the Yale School of Drama in 1980. Incredibly talented, and a couple of years after she graduated, she suffered some uh, the onset of mental illness, and she became addicted to drugs, and she essentially became a street person in New Haven. And she would stand on the corner and recite beautifully long passages from Shakespeare as a way of sort of caging, caging money, uh, panhandling. And then just a couple of years ago, through the help of some people that stayed friendly with her in the theater community, she found uh, a permanent home, a nursing home where she could get regular meals and clean clothes. Uh, and then, you know, a couple of years later, she died of COVID. So those are some of the the stories that stuck with me. You mentioned that y'all have done a few hundred of these. That is certainly, you're never going to be able to tell everyone's story through an obituary um, when we've had so many hundreds of thousands of people die here in the U.S. and even more around the world. I mean, talk to me about the, the value of still embarking on this project, understanding that you can't tell every story. You know, fortunately, the Times has the resources where they can dedicate reporters and editors to do this, including myself. This is my basically my full-time job. So that helps to have resources. The question of uh, completism or not, I think in the world of journalism, you can never tell the entire story from A to Z. You have to publish at some point, right? So you could use the same logic for this. It's impossible to chronicle every one of the hundreds of thousands now, millions of lives. So... Don't let that be impediment to telling some of the stories. And every time you tell an individual story, every time you give the chronicle of a human life, you're writing something that everyone can identify with, right? We all are facing death, right? We've all been born. We all have parents. Many of us have professions and careers, and you know, many of us have gone to school. And, and this is the stuff we write about, right? The way people live their lives. And I think there's just a basic draw that obituaries have for people. And these are obituaries about people who are dying in one of the biggest events of our time. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? I'm Sam Whitehead talking today with Dan Waken. He's an obituaries editor at the New York Times. We're talking about the paper's project to chronicle some of the victims of the pandemic. How has this been for you personally to be so focused on the human toll of this pandemic for close to a year now? I've been in obits for about two years, so I've, I've edited a lot of obituaries. And I think anybody who edits or writes obituaries you know, has this kind of carapace that forms, just sort of like anybody who deals with tragedy on a regular basis. And it just becomes your job, and you, you try to do your job the best way you possibly can and not dwell on the, the morbid nature. I sort of, in a way, fend off a bit those feelings, especially when I see photographs uh, of our subjects when they're young and realize these are young, were young, vibrant people who are now old and then died, sort of much like I am, right? I was a young person. I'm now getting older and I'm going to die soon. So every once in a while, those thoughts impinge on me. And, I, and particularly when I see people who are the age of my parents, uh, and then that's driven home. But in the case of COVID, there's a, an extra level of intensity because these people are dying all around you. I mean, you know, in the early months here in New York City where I live, you know, I'd hear sirens a lot more than I used to hear going to the hospital. And that's right outside my window. So you feel like you're immersed in it, living in it. 
at the same time, you have to step back and be professional about it and maintain that distance. I'm wondering too, if, if working on, you know, if, if you've been doing obits for some time now, if working on them during a pandemic has changed your perspective on their value. I think that doing obituaries focused on a national trauma drives home the importance of obituaries in the sense that we get a lot more reaction from people than we do on you know, many of the opus we write. People who are saying, thank you for putting faces behind statistics, right? Because that's a lot of what's going on here is that we are sketching out human lives that are just normally would have been just a number. When you're writing regular obituaries and editing non-COVID related obituaries, there's a little bit less of that. It's more of, um, hey, here's this really fascinating person who did all this stuff and we're going to tell you about them now. So there, there is that extra level of, of feeling like you're doing something of service, of you know, some merit for the, you know, the good of society. That's why a lot of journalists do what they do is because they feel the importance of doing something that improves society somehow. You get a little closer to that in writing obituaries about a, a pandemic. We're this week, 300,000 COVID-related uh, deaths that we know of here in the U.S. I think that's a number that's really hard for people to wrap their heads around. Or even statistics like, you know, in the last week or so, we've had more people die of COVID in one day than what died on 9-11, died during Pearl Harbor. How does anyone comprehend that? No, it's true. It's hard. Um, it's sort of like when you look at statistics involving other diseases like cancer. X number of people died of cancer or X number of people died of diabetes. It's a very sort of um, impersonal, abstract idea. But uh, when the, the national consciousness is so intensely focused on one disease, then those numbers become, I think, a little bit more terrifying, those, those big numbers. And at the same time, they, they remain abstract for you know, so many of us who have not lost a friend or a relative. For those who have lost someone, it's a totally different ballgame. I mean, that's there's there's direct experience of tragedy right away from the pandemic. And, you know, writing about the lives of people who have died, for those who don't have an experience it directly, is a way of driving home the, the human cost. Has working on the obituaries desk and working on this project, living in New York City, which is was really hard hit by the pandemic, has this changed how, how you think about death at all? It's given me a deeper sense of how people grieve. You know, I'm used to just getting a file from a reporter, a writer, and then editing that copy, etc. Right now, I'm looking at the messages from family members and friends. Uh, I'm looking at Twitter. I'm, I'm sort of very, very closely in touch with the, the grief and the emotions of people, more so than when I was just editing regular obits. So I think I have a deeper understanding of that. I mean, there's you start to see sort of common threads. You see anger at uh, government policies that people blame for the death of their loved ones. You see people wanting to cry out and warn everyone, wear a mask, you know. So, so death has really kind of brought out a lot of emotions in people that I am now more aware of. I think the other thing also that's very striking for me that's very different is the numerous tales of people unable to say goodbye to their loved ones as they die. 
because of quarantine, you know, and safety reasons, or people who whose last look at their loved one is through a hospital window. That kind of end of life tragedy and pain, and and so it's very anomalous. And then all the stories about funerals being held, in which people can't attend. So these rituals and and uh, and emotional uh, reactions to death that we've had in our society for hundreds of years have really changed a lot. And, and that's something that, that I've had a close-up view uh, doing this job. We started off by talking about a project that y'all started, not really knowing um, what the future was going to bring. Have y'all had conversations about how this project lives on, how it exists uh, when the pandemic uh, is over? No, I think the, the closest we came to that was back in... I would say the late summer when we were saying, well, how long are we going to do this project? Are we going to go through the end of the year or are we going to you know, wrap it up maybe at the beginning of September after Labor Day? And we decided right away, no, this has to keep going. Nothing's changing. And now with this enormous surge, that subject hasn't even come up of when we stop. As far as down the road when, when the pandemic is over, there'll always be... Um, the New York Times electronic archives where anybody could uh, you know, search for an individual and the interactive, which is the sort of online vehicle that holds all of these obits will still be searchable and available. The 9-11 project became a book, but that was doable because there was you know, a finite number of victims and they could be encompassed between the pages of a, of a hardcover book. This one, I mean, it's just an enormous number. So so I don't really I don't really know what's going to happen in terms of what the times will be doing, but certainly the individual stories and the grouping of them will be online for anyone to see in the future. This is something that I you know can imagine you'll be doing for quite some time still to come. We we really don't know how how big the death toll is going to get. Just reflect on that for me if you can. The kind of unceasing nature of, of this project and the fact that it's still without an end and we, here we are a year into it. I don't want to sound callous, but, you know, every day I, I wake up and I go back to this sort of unceasing flow of death. And, um, you know, I, it kind of gets to be, it sort of gets you down a bit and you kind of want to do something different. And then some great story will come along and or some very moving piece written by one of our great writers, and it's just it just seems like it's a wonderful thing, thing and I'm you know, delighted to be doing it. So that's from the personal angle. Institutionally, what will we do? I really don't know. I mean, it looks like we're going to be hitting five hundred thousand, um, uh, you know, at some point uh, pretty soon. That'll be another milestone. You know, if the vaccine rolls out to most people by the summer, by the end of the summer, and there's a, a big tailing off, uh, maybe that's a time to, to think about stopping. Um, but, you know, it's a kind, it's, I feel just as uncertain about the future of this project as I did back in June or May. You know, it's just, we just don't know. We're just going to keep doing our job, just keep chronicling the lives that, that have been lost. And for John, really. I mean, that's really all I can do. Dan Waken is an obituaries editor at The New York Times. Did You Wash Your Hands? is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. 
WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's also where you can leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate and thanks.